You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. I've just spent six days at Eaton, Eaton Rapids Camp Meeting. Who in here has camp meetings in your past? Anybody? We've got about, yeah, three people. We had four people. We had nobody at the first service who'd ever done anything with a camp meeting. And I'm right there with you. I really don't have a big camp meeting experience. I, I, uh, I always thought that, you know, camp meetings were a relic of days gone by. It's where old evangelists go to die, I guess. Um, and I know that's not true because they invited me there. So that can't be what it is. That's not Eaton Rapids. Actually, there were nearly as many children and adults, uh, or children and youth as there were adults. I mean, hundreds of people every night at this camp meeting. Um, and, and young parents were telling me that they'd found Jesus at this camp meeting. And so they brought their kids because they want their kids to find Jesus at this camp meeting. And they did. It was really the most beautiful expression to me, really exceptionally well done intergenerational ministry. So it was a lovely thing to see because that's kind of where we're also headed. I got to talk with several youth about their faith, and, um, and, and one of the youth, I got to tell you this story. She came up to me, it's first or second day in the cafeteria, and she said, I want to talk to you about maybe how I can, you know, put my Christian faith together with magic, because I really like magic. And she's not talking about, you know, illusion and, and card tricks. She's talking about occult magic. And I was like, okay, all right, we'll talk about that, my friend. It turns out she's from Africa, and, um, and, and, and she's actually had people in her family who'd had curses placed upon them. And so for her and her family, magic was almost a kind of self-defense. So the next night, after she and I had talked just a little bit, um, I preached on Jesus and how he related to demons. And somewhere in the middle of my message, she got up and walked out. Somebody followed her. It turned out she was really agitated by that message, but in a good way. And by the end of that night, she had burned all her, all her trinkets and buried her rings yeah, it was awesome. And yesterday, eight of the students at that camp meeting got baptized for the first time, and she was among them. How awesome is that? Yeah, and, and there were a whole bunch of adults who came to Jesus during this time. Yesterday, we had a heal, or they had a healing service. I had to come home. They had a healing service. Several adults committed their lives to Jesus over the week. That kind of camp is holiness at its best. It's a vital and loving and joy-filled family of believers who are raising up a generation of spirit-filled kids who actually hear holiness as good news. And who have been preaching it, the camp has been preaching it since 1865. These names won't mean much to you, but I was like, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I was standing in the exact same pulpit in the same place. This tabernacle's like 120 years old. 
I'm standing in the same place with E. Stanley Jones, missionary to India, and uh, Henry Clay Morrison, two-time, or I don't know, decades-long president of Asbury College, and, and Sam Kamalason, another amazing in- Indian evangelist, and, and, all kind, and, and John Oswalt, whose name you should know because I've been invoking him all summer long. And, and, and here's the thing, I might have missed all that if I had not accepted the invitation to go, because see, I have a sort of an informal um, thing. I, I don't say yes to camp meetings and revivals because I feel like it's sort of pandering to the overchurched, as Lindsay Davis would have said, and so I gotta, cut the, I gotta set the bar somewhere. So I don't say yes to camp meetings and revivals, except that two years ago, John Oswalt was the one who called me and asked me to come to Eaton Rapids camp meeting. And I said, oh yes, sir, I would love to come to that camp meeting. And so I got, and he was there. So I got to tell him that um, he's a rock star to me, that I've been invoking his name all summer while we've been in this series on Isaiah. I got to tell him that I'm almost embarrassed now that I've studied Isaiah more than five minutes, that um, to say that this is the first time I've preached a whole series on it, and also that I'm embarrassed that we cut this series short to just seven weeks, that there's so much more to preach through in this fifth gospel. I'm so sad the series isn't longer. We've jumped over some of the best passages like um, Isaiah 49, when, when God tells Israel, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's one end of a thread that runs all the way through. It runs through Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. It continues to run through Paul as he sits in that hotel room in Troas looking over the, the, the ocean toward Macedonia and the world that lay beyond. I am so sorry we don't get to preach that during this series, or or, or Isaiah 55, you get it right, I'm now preaching these things, many versions. Isaiah 55, 12, my favorite, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isn't that the best? That one day all creation will be animated with this worship and awe. Ah, what a profound and beautiful and challenging vision that is. Or Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to to, um, proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That is the passage that Jesus reached back and grabbed hold to in Luke chapter four when he stood out up and announced his public ministry. And that's the same charge that he gave to his disciples in Luke chapter nine when he transferred the anointing to the average person. You can hear worship threaded all through Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 63, I will tell of the Lord's unfailing love. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them through the years. This glorious tribute to the unfathomable love of God. The spiritual 
hunger that Isaiah responds with. Isaiah chapter 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Whew. Which is such a statement about Isaiah himself. He has not given up. He is still contending with God. 500 years after their return from exile with the promise of exile still in front of them. Also, Isaiah still holds hope. He can still pray with passion. Tear open the heavens, God. Come down, make your name known. Make the mountains shake. Help us, God, to hold on, believing that eventually the homes we build will not be for other people to live in. The things we plant will not be for others to eat. Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down and bless us. Man, I feel that prayer so deeply and personally. I feel it deeply and today, today I'm leaning on it. That one day I won't be building a house for somebody else to benefit from. That one day I'll see God pour out on us. That makes Isaiah so current and so real to me. The whole book is designed to send us toward worship, toward awe. For every reference to judgment, there's a call to hope. Instead of mourning, this call to joy. Creation foreshadows new creation. Isaiah is having a constant conversation with revelation. Worship becomes a call to missional living. Former things give way to new things. If I were going to boil all of Isaiah's prophetic vision down to one line, this would be it. Forget the former things. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Isaiah gives us a choice, judgment or hope. There's your choice. And the great news is that even, even the judgment God absorbs. And because of that, Oswald says, he, he can declare that finally nothing can keep us from his love. Nothing. Except our own determination to persist in rebellion. In other words, we are our own worst enemy. I need you to turn and tell somebody near you right now, I am my own worst enemy. Go ahead, tell somebody right now. You need to hear yourself say that. Our choice is to keep feeding lesser gods that send us into exile, but Isaiah wants us to hear that this doesn't have to be. We can build a new reality for ourselves that is, that is in partnership with a hope-filled, joy-filled God. We can build. We can build. We can build from here. That takes us right into Isaiah chapter 66. I want you to look at the first seven verses. I'm gonna break them down. So let's just start with verse one. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, which is to say I, am, I have been there from creation and I am bigger than all your stuff. 
You should write that down. I am bigger than everything. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? That's the line you need to, that's, that's the question you need to underline. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? This is beautiful because the seventh day of creation, what did God do? He rested. He rested, why? Because he'd finished his work. It was complete. You won't remember this, but I do, that in in our study last fall on the book of Hosea, we were doing the Minor Prophets, we learned that the name Hosea means redemption and the name Gomer, that prostitute he had to fall in love with and marry and have children with, the name of Gomer was completion. Redemption will not walk out until he has complete. Where will my resting place do? What gives God Rest. What will complete our story? Where is the house you will build for me? That question is an incredible place to end this whole long prophetic vision and, and it's so remarkably relevant, isn't it? Right now it feels so much like we are planting a church all over again. So that line from Isaiah 43, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That line gives me energy and hope for what would otherwise just make me tired. You know? So here on this side of the pandemic, and it will eventually end, a group from our, that kind of came out from our vision team has been sitting, uh, they've had the charge of looking at what the next two years might look like for us and asking where would God might take us from here and we've just had these great conversations and that's what we'll do next week in these little vision sharing slash listening sessions between the first and second service and after the second service. We'll be um, We'll be sharing, I'll be sharing some of our thoughts with you, but we also want to get your input. This is very much a a work in progress. We'll have time for listening and conversation after both services. And our goal in developing this two-year vision for Mosaic is to give this clear focus to our energy, our limited energy, time, and prayer. How do we get clear focus so we don't get sidetracked on things that don't matter? How do we rebuild our culture post-pandemic? You know, the pandemic has reshaped the Mosaic community in fundamental ways. And it is more true to our reality to enter this season with the mentality of a church plant, though this time around, it's one with remarkable resources. The first time we planted it was a The entire congregation could sit around my kitchen table and eat hamburgers. This time around, we have more people who are invested in this community who have proven themselves by staying here, being here, loving here, being in community together through a hard time. And we have a whole building, and we have a staff team, and we have financial resources. So where's the house you will build for me? 
I hear Isaiah's question from God. Where is the house? And then he lays out his hopes for us. He begins with this. Look at Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. He says, has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones, I want you to underline this. This should be a personal challenge. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Underline that. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So where's the house you will build for me? He he, he says it, it begins with humility. Build it on humility, not talent. Build it on humility, not talent. The same call to humility is it runs through Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 15. I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. In that one verse, Isaiah gives us a recipe for revival. This is a call to be hidden, humble, and holy. Write that down. Hidden, humble, and holy. Hidden. Chris and I have been, uh, for for months now, we've been sort of uh, studying discipleship movements in the United States that are not, not sort of rooted in rock star um, churches or rock star people. In fact, um, some of the most powerful m- multiplying movements are people you've never even heard of. A guy named Ralph Moore, you've never heard of Ralph Moore, but he started a church that actually grew to, to a decent size, just preaching the word every Sunday, and then that church birthed some churches, and then those churches birthed some churches, and those churches birthed some churches. They're like seven generations out now, on ch- and so that the people who are in the seventh generation of churches don't even know the name Ralph Moore. I think it's like 2,000 churches. 2,000 churches who can claim that original church as their sort of parent, their spiritual parent. It's amazing. And you've never heard the name. You know, we prefer scattershot, big gathering approaches which, which actually end up producing fewer disciples. But what we've discovered in our church by necessity, not so much vision, but hopefully now by vision, what we've discovered is that the choice to focus on genuine, organic discipleship is a choice to live inside a hidden ministry. And the challenge is to choose obedience over ego. Hidden and humble process of developing a full-on discipleship and mentoring system, which we've been planning. We're, we're, we've been planning it, and we're, this is what we'll start to really unroll and introduce next week. It's slow going, friends, and it's, it's often messy. There's a price to pay for authenticity and quality. And the price we'll pay is um, it's a, to sacrifice size and speed. The payoff is actual disciples, not just buns in the seats. And that requires a kind of patience, a humility that waits on the Lord, 
and waits on the process that doesn't, that doesn't try too hard to get out in front. Hidden, humble, and holy, those who tremble at my word, all of it rooted in the word of God, everything rooted in the word, everything in submission to the word. Build it, he says, on humility, not talent. And then look at verses three and four. He says, whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. And whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. These are all things that, that the Old Testament community have been authorized to bring as offerings. So why would these things be wrong? He tells us. They've chosen their own ways. They delight in their abominations, and so I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread, because when I called, you didn't answer. You brought your offering, but when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, nobody listened. You did evil in my sight and chose what, uh, chose what displeases me. So the word I hear where will you build a house for me? Let's build it on humility, not talent. Build it on compassion, not sacrifice. Isaiah will not let us get away with worship that doesn't lead to more compassionate lives. And he won't let us get away with trying to work ourselves there. Religion without relationship is no religion at all. James tells us this, that the religion God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look on orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is about the centrality of missional worship. Isaiah always cuts that path from, from worship to missions. God has no intention of leaving anyone behind. Sinless himself, Jesus is always on the side of the sinner. He has compassion for the one who is oppressed. He has a preference for the poor. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah writes, for he has uh, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to, to give release from darkness to those who are oppressed. Build it on compassion, not just doing the right things when it comes time to worship. Then look at verse eight. He says, Who have, who's ever heard of such things? Who's ever seen such things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? And yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I not bring to, uh, sorry, do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Now rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her. All you who have been mourning, for you will nurse and be satisfied, he says. Where's the house you will build for me? 
Build it on humility, not talent. Build it on compassion, not sacrifice. And build it on joy, not desperation. Oswald, uh, John Oswald writes, those who love Jerusalem but who have had reason to mourn her condition, all of a sudden now they have reason for joy. The day will arrive when joy and blessing will come to those in God's new Jerusalem without pain or even effort. I love that part. You know, that's how you know. That's how you know. It's when it's not a lot of self-effort pushing things through. 500 years after exile, with the promise of more exile ahead, God can see over the horizon to what can be. And Isaiah 55, 12 says, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst in the song before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. This is a picture of life filled with the presence of God, every nerve standing on end, every cell of every living thing bursting with the joy of the Lord. Jesus told the religious people of his day that God would be worshiped no matter what. And he said, if you don't worship him, then the rocks will cry out. I remember that old Methodist preacher, uh, Walter Kimbrough said, I don't want no rock crying out in my place. If you don't do it, friends, the rocks will cry out. And then we come to the big finale of the whole book. Look at verse 18. Where's the house you will build for me, God asked. It will be in the place where you've built it with humility, not talent, with compassion, not sacrifice, with joy, not desperation. And it will be in the place where you build it on God's heart and to expose his glory. Isaiah 66, 18 to 20, and I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come, to, to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. I will send some of you to the nations to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to Lydians, famous as archers. I wonder why they chose to add that. To Tubal in Greece and to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They all proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. So do you see it? It won't be you bringing lambs and rams and bulls and your leftovers. It will be you bringing people. So what binds Isaiah 49 to 66 together is God's heart for the rest of the world. Which is such a good word for us in this season because we are content, many of us, to sort of nestle down inside our own salvation and be comfortable there. But Isaiah's God won't have it. I will make you a light to the nations, he says, Isaiah 49, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A light to the nations, Isaiah says. Because it's too light a thing that you should care only for you and yours. Too light a thing. 
that we take care of our own people, our own church, our own salvation. It is too light a thing, God says, to keep feeding the ones who have been well preserved. To the ends of the earth. Back in May, no, it wasn't May. I did this earlier, and it wasn't May. It was early because it was spring break. Linda Cutcliffe and I went down to Florida, to Panama City, to, um, that wasn't Panama City, I don't know, Jacksonville, that's where we were. It was someplace in Florida with beach nearby. I can remember that much. Uh, we We were honoring the life of Steve Cutcliffe's mom. It was her funeral. And so the morning of that funeral, I got it really early. It's like 6.30 in the morning. I could not believe the number of people who were already up and on the beach at 6.30 in the morning. All of them looking at the, at the horizon, waiting for the sun to come up. So they're all looking, so I'm looking with them. And it turns out that morning, there was the horizon, and then there was the, um, the fog so the fog was, kind of the fog line was way up here. The horizon was down here. Can you picture that? Does it make sense? So they were waiting, not just for the sun to break through the horizon, but actually to get it, to get the sunrise, you had to wait for it to get up over the fog line. And I'm, we're all standing there, staring at the fog line, waiting for the sun to show up. And while I stood watching, I thought about all the things that I personally am waiting for right now. You know, waiting for this cursed pandemic to end. Waiting for general conference so the United Methodist Church can peaceably separate and the global Methodist Church can be birthed. Waiting for people to come back to worship. Waiting on what God's new thing is for me. And then I was just standing out there and I thought about that quote just while I'm standing there thinking about all those things about that quote from that reformed theologian I've quoted it before God is always doing 10,000 things around us and we are aware of three of them and I wondered especially when it comes to some of those bigger things what if we're waiting for something that's already happened you know What if God has already released us into his hope-filled future? You know, the God who is over time, maybe he is already able to see, not just over the horizon line, but over the fog line. Forget the former things he's saying. Don't even dwell on them. I'm doing a new thing. I'm already out there doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you see it? I am cutting a pathway through the desert. I am building streams in the wasteland. My sun is already risen. You just can't see it because of the fog. If that's true, then what if we are all focused on things we just can't yet see? They're already there. We just can't yet see them. What if, what if God is off doing 9,997 things that we're not even aware of? And just as I had that thought, looking out there, you know, ocean this way, horizon, fog line, I turned around 
And there, right there, it sure felt like a door to me. I mean, it just felt like it was right there. And it was an open door, a spiritual door, not a real door, not out there on the beach, but there it was. And, and, and on the other side of that door were these rows and rows and rows of hotels. And it was spring break, so I know who was in those hotels. Because I used to be one of those college students who would go down there. And I know that if those people are like me, those rooms are filled with people who are lost who are hungry, some of them perishing for the lack of a hopeful word. And I stood there looking at the hotel, looking at the fog, wondering, grieving how much time we have spent, all of us, desperately staring toward a horizon, waiting for a sun that has, I believe it, friends, already risen already broken through, while a world of lost and hurting people starve for a better answer. And so I want to say to you this morning, be encouraged, friends. And don't focus on the fog. Don't focus on the fog. Go looking for hope. Because God is always doing 10,000 things in the world. And right now, he is inviting us to step through that doorway into a new thing, to become a light to the nations, because the world is our parish. And the world is God's mission. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, We'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.